We are seven days into 2024. And at the beginning of a new year, people can feel a sense of freshness in the air and over their lives. A new year can bring that. It brings that kind of sentiment. New possibilities, new resolutions. You hear a lot about resolutions. People say things like, I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to eat less of this. And I'm going to work more at this. I'm going to learn how to do this. You know, the reason I know that people make resolutions that sound like that is because I'm quoting some of you. Some of you have said these things in previous days. wonder how we're doing seven days in. Resolutions abound. This is true. But let's be clear about something that should be increasingly obvious to us. The greatest impact upon our hearts and lives this year will be the decisions we make for our spiritual life. The greatest impact upon our hearts and lives this year will be the decisions we make for our spiritual life. I'm talking about not extraordinary, new, latest, this or that. I'm talking about regular time in the Word. I'm talking about regular times of prayer. I'm talking about faithful attendance to and involvement in Cosmosdale. I'm talking about fellowship with the people of God, building relationships and growing in wisdom. We're talking about the things that make the deepest, longest lasting impact for your spiritual life. Because your spiritual life affects everything else. So therefore, we must be most attentive to and deeply investing in our soul before the Lord. If you think about growth, think about things that grow out of the ground, things that you would harvest in a field, what is it that you would hope to harvest and reap as the months unfold? And as 2024 would draw near to an end if the Lord tarries. If you have a sense of what growth you would like to see in yourself, your commitment to the Lord and your love of His Word and your involvement in the people of God, what grows will be what is planted. And therefore, we think of these these opening days and weeks and months of a year to think about orienting our hearts and minds, thinking about planting seeds of spiritual growth and goodness for our sake. An important resolution for your spiritual lives can be put simply like this. Lean in. Two words. Lean in. Lean into relationships. Lean into involvement at Cosmosdale. You will face the opposite temptation. You will face the temptation to lean away and to pull back. Because life is hard and schedules are full and people are busy. If you're uninvolved at Cosmosdale, you'll feel the temptation to maintain the status quo. But don't you see, you could do things differently in 2024. This is a new year. What is it that you hope to reap and harvest? It will be in continuity with the seeds you're planting. Because you're in a battle. You're in a battle for peace in your heart. You're in a battle for peace in your home. And you know this is true. You're in a battle for mental clarity about truth and wisdom. You're in a battle against your indwelling sin, which seeks to rule over you and master you. Our ultimate warfare is spiritual. Paul was reminding Timothy of this. This letter, known as 1 Timothy, is an injection of goodness about the gospel. It's an inoculation about the goodness of the people of God. 
It's going to be good for our souls to walk through in the next several months the rest of this letter. We're going to be meditating on how to wage the good warfare and to fight the good fight of faith. There is a battle to be fought. There is a warfare in which we conduct our lives in the spiritual context that the Word of God speaks to. And we must be a people equipped. We must be a people equipped. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to verses 18 to 20. And prior to this, Paul has reminded Timothy that God's mercy had poured upon the Apostle Paul's life in such an, uh, an extravagant way that he took a persecuting, blaspheming opponent of the church and turned him into an evangelist and missionary for the cause of the gospel. Paul was so moved as he reflected on God's mercy to him that in verse 17, he wrote a doxology of praise to God. And Paul has been reminding Timothy of all of this. The mercy of God and the praise do God's name. God is transcendent and majestic. The king of the ages, we're told in verse 17. The immortal and invisible God, the only God. And to this God belong glory and honor forever and ever. Paul is going to speak in verses 18 to 20 with words that resume an earlier idea. Notice in verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. In verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. When verse 18 starts this way, this charge I entrust to you, he is resuming the earlier language that we've got to remember from weeks back. An earlier charge that he clarified as the charge to stop the false teachers who are influencing and bringing spiritual harm to the congregation. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. Now when you entrust something to someone, you have a sense of the value of that thing and the trustworthiness of that person. You recognize, all right, this is going to be entrusted, this matters, and therefore there needs to be a faithful stewardship for the one receiving that trust so that it's passed on with confidence. And something that Timothy has received, in addition to the knowledge of the gospel, in addition to this letter in general, is a particular task in Ephesus. This charge in verse 3, was to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies previously made. Now he mentions Timothy again by name. We know the addressee has not changed. Um, we still know that it's Timothy because of verse 2, to Timothy. But notice the language that's repeated. Verse 2 says, to Timothy, my true child. And in verse 18, Timothy, my child. Once again, Paul is appealing explicitly to Timothy's name and reminding of the affectional connection that they have because Paul has been a spiritual mentor for Timothy. Timothy is a spiritual uh, mentee in that way, having received instruction and guidance, mentorship and wisdom. And Timothy, as a young man, is like a child in the faith compared to Paul. And Paul has exerted spiritual leadership in Timothy's life. And Paul's appealing as someone further down the line with a greater scope and sense and awareness of the needs of the churches. And so when he appeals to Timothy, he appeals to someone he trusts. And someone to whom he has made 
a charge entrusted to him. This charge is not just from Paul, however. Look in verse 18, right after he mentions Timothy, my child. This charge is bigger than Paul's inclinations about something that needed to happen. This charge that I entrust to you is in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Okay, what? (laughs) The prophecies previously made about you. What is going on where there were prophecies earlier made about Timothy? And what does that have to do with his work in Ephesus? When we look at this language about prophecies previously made, he says similar things in chapter 4 of this letter. Chapter 4.14, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So there was an event in Timothy's life that we can imply. This, This particular event was Timothy being surrounded by leaders who proclaimed Uh, prayerfully over Timothy's life in a way that was like prophecy. Prophets were at work in the early church. To give you an instance from the book of Acts, in Acts 13, it tells us while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This was some kind of commissioning that was um, compelled by a word from the Lord. I think we should understand the plausible scenario like this. Timothy has had a previous experience where people had prophesied over his life with a word from the Lord. A word from the Lord, prophecies previously made about you, that would pertain to Timothy's ministry. And part of Timothy's time in Ephesus will be him conducting himself in light of previous prophecies made about him. Now, if this charge is in accordance with the prophecies, and if these prophecies are so that by them you may wage the good warfare, then part of the prophetic word spoken over Timothy by godly leaders previous to his time in Ephesus, I think it boils down to something like this. The word from the Lord from us and to you, Timothy is that you will wage the good warfare for sound doctrine and against false teachers in Ephesus. It would be something to that effect. So Paul says, that's your charge. But remember, Timothy, that charge does not originate with me, your spiritual father in the faith. I'm entrusting you with this charge. I am exhorting you to recall it and to be conducting yourself in light of it. But this charge is in accordance with previous prophecies made about you, Timothy. What a heavy thing. All right. This is this is a a massively heavy ordeal in Timothy's life. He's a young man. And a word from the Lord through prophets in the New Testament have spoken over Timothy in such a way that it is going to shape mentally how he is to think about his engagement in Ephesus. He is going to engage in the defense of sound doctrine. And part of his defense of sound doctrine will involve basically this, charging certain men not to teach things contrary to doctrine that is sound. Because these men who are teaching false things are subverting sound doctrine. They are teaching what is different in verse 3. They desire to be teachers in verse 7, but they don't know what they're saying or about which they make confident assertions. 
These people ought not be teachers, and Timothy is to combat them in a very direct and bold, courageous way. In verse 18, what we have then is this previous experience that Paul is recalling. Timothy, remember when they prayed over you. Remember when they laid hands upon you. Remember when prophecies were spoken about your ministry. And now, Timothy, I'm entrusting you with this charge in accordance with those prophecies. What is the point of the entrusting and the prophecies? The end of verse 18 gives us a purpose statement. These prophecies were previously made about you so that by them you may wage the good warfare. Part of the way Timothy will be of present use for the spiritual good of the Ephesian church is he will remember what has been previously said. So that by them, by those previously said prophecies, by them you may wage the good warfare. That is a military metaphor. Waging the good warfare is strong language. You could translate that fighting the good fight. Waging the good battle. Fighting the good fight. Timothy is to be told, Timothy, you're in a war. Okay, This is a spiritual context and truth is under assault. People are teaching what is false. Spiritual harm will come upon those in your midst. Fight the good fight, Timothy. I mean, not all fights. There's not a, a, a hill all around the, that uh, the ministers of the gospel from Timothy's day forward are to say, I'll die on that hill and that hill and that hill and that hill. When it comes to the sound doctrine of the gospel, that's the hill to die on. And Timothy here is to defend the truth of the gospel because Paul's entrusted him with this charge. Prophets have prophesied about the task he's going through and remembering them by them, he will be motivated through such remembrance, to wage the good warfare. His task is not easy. Most things in life worth doing aren't easy all the time anyway. Life is difficult, and so are many good and fruitful things to pursue. Challenging, full of hardships, requiring discipline and self-control and all manner of commitment. It's no different for Timothy. He's in a battle, and he is not to retreat. Timothy is to wage the good warfare. It is called a good warfare. The fight is a good fight. And the reason is it all pertains to the clarity of sound doctrine that he's to proclaim and defend and to stop others from subverting and corrupting. The fight is good because the gospel is good. That's why the fight is good. The warfare is good because the Savior and the mercy towards sinners and the message of the cross are good news. So good news deserves a good fight. And that's what Timothy is to give them. He should defend the gospel and he is to stop the subverting of the gospel for the spiritual health of the people of God in his midst. Wage the good warfare, Timothy. It's so you've been given these prophecies and I'm entrusting this charge so that you will do this. Phil Riken made a comment on this verse in one of his books. He says, the good fight is the fight for sound theology. The good warfare is the struggle to defend those doctrines essential to the Christian faith. If we do not care about the essentials of the Christian faith and the core doctrines of who Christ is and what he has done and what that means for sinners, then there will be no Christianity left because at the core of it are truths we confess. Things summarized like in the Nicene Creed we recited just a bit ago. Those are not throwaway words. 
For 2,000 years, Christians confessed these things to be true when in the 300s, these these, uh, lines from the Nicene Creed were written. They were summarizing already what Christians were confessing to be true. We're not trying to do something new then. We're trying to wage the good warfare. We're trying to say truth matters. Sound theology is important for the sake of our spiritual health and soul. And it is the fight worth having. The fight is good. Because the gospel is good. So he says, Timothy, wage the good warfare. By them you may wage the good warfare. And he's going to need certain things. We could call them requirements. Certain things, not just what he's going to remember previously said about him by prophets, but certain things he's to hold. Not only to remember, but to hold to. And in verse 19, I think the connection to the end of verse 18 works like this. You are to wage the good warfare by holding things. Holding faith and a good conscience, in verse 19, are key to waging the good fight. So we saw in verse 18 the purpose of his charge. And now at the beginning of verse 19, two requirements for the fight. What will Timothy need in order to wage the good warfare? Holding faith and a good conscience. Now, not everybody will be holding faith in a good conscience. He's going to go on to speak about the danger of spiritual shipwreck later in verse 19 and into verse 20. So Timothy needs to see that the stakes are high because diminishing faith in a good conscience will put Timothy and his hearers and the church at large at greater risk. Holding faith in a good conscience. It tells us at the end of verse 19, by rejecting this... Some have made shipwreck of their faith. So we need to think about what it is to hold faith in a good conscience. Because to not attend to that and to not cultivate that leads to disaster. The word shipwreck is a pretty graphic picture of disaster. That's the thing that nobody wants on a ship is a shipwreck. And so Timothy here is looking at a fork in the road where he is to hold to a good faith and conscience. Because by rejecting that, something disastrous is the alternative. Let's consider holding faith and a good conscience. In verse 19, holding faith likely has to do with his own personal, subjective trust and confidence in the Lord because faith and a good conscience here as a pair are used earlier in chapter 1 as a pair. Uh, It's not just those words, but in verse 5, here's the entirety of this verse, and notice what's repeated in our passage this morning. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So both good conscience and faith are mentioned earlier in the letter. And where did that good conscience and faith reside? Within Timothy and, Lord willing, within all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, in in verse 19, holding faith in a good conscience is likely resuming that earlier thought as well. We've seen the repetition of the charge in verse 18. We're being reminded of faith in a good conscience here in verse 19. Paul is giving a little bit of a recap as well as pressing more deeply in some of the earlier parts of chapter 1. This means Timothy is to pay attention to his trust in God. Having trust or holding faith in the Lord. That is not something he is just to assume. It is something he is to be mindful about. That he is pursuing the Lord. Trusting in Christ. Hoping in Christ. Holding faith and a good conscience. 
Let's remember that the word conscience refers to that inner faculty of moral reasoning. That inner faculty of moral reasoning that we all possess. Now, while all image bearers possess a conscience, the Bible gives different adjectives to describe the state of consciences. Somebody could have a weak conscience, 1 Corinthians 8. Somebody could have a defiled conscience, Titus 1.15. 1 Timothy 4.2, somebody could have a seared conscience. In other words, good conscience, here in verse 19, means there are consciences that might not be good. Everybody has a faculty of moral reasoning, and in a sinful world, our moral reasoning is not always reliable. Somebody might have something other than a good conscience. They might have a faulty conscience. They might have a conscience seared and dulled by the foolishness of the world and by their own rebellion against God. He wants Timothy to be attentive to his own trust in Christ and the sensitivity in Timothy's mind to what is right and what is wrong. Timothy needs a good conscience. And that means a conscience that is functioning as it ought to. We're not leaving things up for grabs, are we, in this idea of a good conscience? There's a, a standard that we can infer, a, a standard that is objective. A good conscience is not a conscience that's good because Timothy feels like he has a good conscience or because Paul pronounces it such. A good conscience is identified by a moral reasoning of right and wrong shaped by the Bible. Biblical truth and worldview to see what God loves and what God hates and to bring our lives in obedience, loving what God loves and hating what God hates. What we need is our conscience to be trained and conformed to the objective standard of the word of God. The challenge is we all have a conscience and we're sinners in a fallen world. And that means sin affects our conscience and our judgment is not always 100% reliable. We wish it was. But our moral instincts can be clouded by all manner of things. First of all, we can be self-deceived. We can think something is okay when it is not okay. We could be pressured by various impulses of people-pleasing outwardly to live and conduct ourselves in a certain way that would violate the Word of God, but we are we are having a conscience that is being pressed upon and shaped by public opinion rather than the scriptures. A good conscience is the result of the Spirit's work through the Word. A good conscience is the result of the Spirit's work through the Word. We want to make 2024 a year where we're not going to shipwreck anything. And that means... We need to think about orienting our lives in our hearts toward the Lord, seeking to trust the Lord, turn to the Lord, and be shaped by the Word of God. We want, in other words, holding, we want to be people holding faith and a good conscience. Those are some New Year's resolutions for you if there ever were any. Holding faith and a good conscience. Not turning from the Lord and not turning from His Word. But holding to Christ, looking to Christ, trusting the word of Christ. A good conscience is the result of the Spirit's work through the word. By rejecting this, in verse 19, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Now the word this is singular. It doesn't have in mind all the elements of the beginning of verse 19. It has in mind the most immediate thing referenced. 
So carefully thinking here, let's, let's, let's uh, substitute this phrase. By rejecting a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So Paul is reasoning in a certain way here. He has just spoken to Timothy in verse 19 about holding faith and a good conscience. But by rejecting the most immediate phrase, by rejecting a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Notice in verse 19, faith and a good conscience are mentioned, and both of them have a role in the last half of the verse. By rejecting a good conscience, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. It is not safe to reject the Bible's influence upon our hearts and minds as to what is right and what is wrong. It takes a toll. We can become desensitized to things by various breaches of ethical behavior and pursuits of ungodliness that will influence larger claims that we're willing to make. Apostasy doesn't always work in one direction. There are two ways that I think the scriptures can identify forsaking the faith. That 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus would lay out especially. The most familiar is the idea of someone rejecting sound doctrine, believing like what these false teachers are teaching, and then their lives can go wayward into rebellion. One of the elements of false teaching in the letters is the teaching of licentious living that these false teachers throughout Paul's letters will occasionally be the cause of. They will uh, be proclaiming that grace is grace is grace and therefore if you are in the Lord and looking to Christ, you can live any way that you want. You're saved by grace. And it is a an attempt to use the gospel as a justification for rebellion against God. And therefore, people can believe wrong doctrine and that lead to wrong behavior. But that's not the only way it has to work. It can work in the reverse. Notice carefully what his reasoning is in verse 19. By rejecting a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. What was starting to be rejected in this particular example in verse 19? What started being rejected was the standard of God's word for what was right and what is wrong, and the alteration of beliefs followed. In other words, they started going down a direction of doing what they wanted to do, what their sinful intuitions led them to do. And in their pursuit of ungodliness, they then were willing to say different things about God, different things about the word, because they wanted to maintain the trajectory of their rebellion. Moral rebellion is dangerous for your soul. And it shipwrecks your life. I'm using the metaphor of the scriptures here. Moral rebellion will shipwreck your life. Therefore, we have to have a sensitivity in our conscience to right and wrong as delineated in the scriptures itself of what is pleasing to God and what we should repent of and flee as sinners. Meaning that 2024... In a new year is a good opportunity for you to ask yourself an important question. 
Am I right now engaging in things, rejecting the conscience God has given me? Am I rejecting my conscience's red flags about what is right and wrong? And am I knowingly pursuing what is willfully in rebellion against God? You are putting your spiritual life in grave danger. You're heading for the rocks. And you might think, I'll be fine. Everybody on the Titanic also said that. What I'm telling you is, beneath the waters of the glitter and allure of temptation is disaster and moral rebellion leads to shipwreck. Over and over again, it is the case in pastoral ministry where people will talk about how they do not feel a love for the Word of God or a love for Christ or an interest in the people of God. And you start to ask them questions about how they're living their lives. And what gets unearthed and not so many questions and answers is that they're living in outright rebellion against God. No wonder they don't love the things of God. Because they haven't connected the fact that if they're living in moral rebellion against God, their spiritual palate for godly things will diminish. Sin has a numbing effect. And so they are at that moment combating a good conscience by searing it. By numbing their moral intuition God given in their heart about what is right and what is wrong. And therefore rejecting a good conscience like happens here in verse 19. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. Yes, some people abandon living for Christ because they first embrace false doctrine that leads away from Christ. Others reject the Lord Jesus and the truth of the gospel because they begin to pursue headlong a life living in rebellion against Christ and the gospel. And their mind change about Christ and the gospel followed their moral, or I should say their disobedient instincts. By rejecting this, by rejecting a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Now, Timothy is reminded here, just as we need to be, that in the local church context here, they have a responsibility to pursue and teach sound doctrine, to defend the truth of the gospel, and to encourage the corporate growth in it. All of that is laid out not just in 1 Timothy. Those are themes throughout the letters of Paul. In other words, in order to not shipwreck our faith, we need one another. We need one another. You are not an island where it's you and Jesus and you're just going to do your best and try your hardest not to make a mess of things. God has given you a gift in Christ Jesus and that is the body of Christ. The local church that together we shall not shipwreck our faith because we are pulling together and in Christ confessing truth and sharing burdens and walking wisely on a path where there are all sorts of minds along the road to destroy by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith and we're seeking to walk differently. We don't want to reject a good conscience. At least we shouldn't. And so if in your life, you can look, at the, look across the different realms of your personal habits and your work practices and your family dynamics, are you presently engaged in anything that is willful rebellion against God? If so, you are harming your conscience. And it will affect your spiritual palate about the things of Christ, they will not seem sweet to you because sin doesn't seem bitter to you yet. 
One of the Puritans said that Christ will not be sweet until sin be tasted as bitter. As long as your commitment to the deeds of the darkness is maintained in that trajectory, you will not love. What I want you to see is in 2024, you need to be all in for Christ. Sin has never served you well. And it won't. The same strategies and the same lies will be tried over and over again by the devil and all of his minions. Sin has never served you well. What you need is Christ. And what you need is his church. In John's gospel, there is a part in John chapter 3 where Jesus is teaching what people in the darkness do. And how similar is this idea to 1 Timothy 1.19? He says here, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. What is the reason given there for not coming to the light? What is the explanation that those who do wicked things and having hated the light, what do they they refuse to do at that point? They don't come to the light Because of what they're previously committed to. The deeds of darkness. We're told in verse 19 of John 3. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. In other words the darkness. And all the life and rebellion against God. It provided in their thinking. In their faulty deluded thinking. The cover that they needed. But they need to turn from that sin. It's going to destroy them. They're going to make a shipwreck of their lives. And the word of God is pleading with them. The wisdom of scripture matters here because the Bible sees farther down the road than you do. You don't see a shipwreck coming. The Bible does. 2024 need not be a year where that happens for you. He wants Timothy to wage the good warfare, to fight the good fight, to love the truth, holding faith and a good conscience. Because by rejecting this, by rejecting a good conscience, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Now he He doesn't leave it general. Some have made a shipwreck. You might scratch your head and think, well, who would he have in mind? Well, he names some names. He doesn't always name names. But it is interesting when Paul does decide to name some names. And in verse 20, he says, here are two of them. Among whom, so this is not all of them. It's not like it's just these two guys. But he does say, among whom, these some who have rejected a good conscience and shipwrecked their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Well, there they are. They're right there in the, the uh, letter for all of history to read and reflect on. These two people are incorporated in the scriptures as shipwreckers of faith, of people who have rejected the good conscience. That is what they are known by in this letter. Now, in verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander are names that we should consider not just in 1 Timothy, but in 2 Timothy. The name Hymenaeus appears there as well. Hymenaeus appears in 2 Timothy 2, and there he seems to have this uh, influence of corrupted teaching like gangrene, Paul says in 2 Timothy. Not not a flattering comparison, but, but it's Paul's way of saying what Hymenaeus' influence is like is something you wouldn't want, which has led commentators to say Hymenaeus is likely a leader in the church with influence or at least some kind of standing in the church where you ought to be concerned about this guy because his influence is like gangrene spreading. He's not the only person mentioned in 2 Timothy. Alexander's mentioned there as well. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Alexander is called a coppersmith who Paul says strongly opposed our message and did Paul great harm. Oh my, uh, there's a story there. And we don't, we're not given that story, but even there as a reader, we're thinking, what did he do? He used to, did great harm and opposed our message. And these are likely the same two people mentioned in 1 Timothy. That in 1 and 2 Timothy, these two people, Hymenaeus and Alexander, are problems. Now, could they be a different Hymenaeus and a different Alexander? I suppose that's possible. I don't think it's very likely. It's likely the same problem people in those, those two letters. And here in Ephesus, among whom have rejected a good conscience and shipwrecked their faith, are these two guys. And Paul was involved in what happened afterward. Are you ready for this phrase? Whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Wow. There are only two places in the New Testament where Paul speaks about handing over to Satan. Here, 1 Timothy 1 verse 20, and 1 Corinthians 5 verse 5, where someone in the church in Corinth had engaged in sexual immorality and in such a flagrant and shameless way that the church ought to have expelled the immoral brother from among them, but instead they had not dealt with it in church discipline. The language about delivering over to Satan occurs in that passage. It is a strong and disturbing phrase that means excommunication. That's what this is meaning. When he says Hymenaeus and Alexander have rejected a good conscience and they've shipwrecked their faith and he's handed them over to Satan, it's because these people, when confronted of their error, refuse to abandon it. They refuse to recant their erroneous teachings. They refuse to conform their teachings and lives to sound doctrine and what is in keeping with sound doctrine. And therefore, in their unrepentance, they are disciplined by the local church. Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul says, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may, be learning, that they may learn not to blaspheme. It is church discipline with the hope of restoration. The very end of the verse, that they may learn not to blaspheme, is a hope that with the radical measures eventually applied against the unrepentant leaders, Hymenaeus and Alexander, that they would be restored in good faith and a good conscience. That's the ultimate hope. That is the aim of church discipline anyway. There are various stages that in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17 that we see, but the final step in Matthew 18 is to regard that professing Christian as an unbeliever or tax collector to essentially expel them from among the fellowship of the saints, which is handing them over to Satan, according to 1 Corinthians 5 or 1 Timothy 1.20. So we gain a little bit of clarity from Matthew chapter 18, 15 to 17, that the goal is still restoration for these unrepentant ones. They may learn not to blaspheme. How serious is it when people are subverting sound doctrine? Well, the seriousness is on the level that Paul believes repenting of it would be abandoning blasphemy. Because if they are distorting who Christ is, if they are leading people in rebellion against God, if those teachings were followed, those false teachings were followed, if subverting the sound doctrine distorts the truth of the gospel, it brings slander and disrepute upon the name of Christ and the gospel. It is a kind of blasphemy. 
So why is false teaching the kind of thing that animates Paul in such a major way in his letters? Because false teaching is blasphemy. And false teachers are blasphemers. They are slandering the truth and goodness of the gospel. And they're bringing spiritual harm on others. But here's what Paul knows. 1 Timothy 1 verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy. You see, here's what Paul knows. God can save blasphemers. He was one. Think about what he rejected in the years before his conversion. Or the months before his conversion, I should say. Think about what he would have endeavored to do going from place to place with letters from the local synagogue, searching for believers. He wanted them in prison. He oversaw the martyrdom of Stephen with glee in Acts chapter 7 and 8. He wanted the church of Jesus Christ stopped. Paul was a blasphemer. But God has mercy on blasphemers. Paul knows this. So if these in the local church in Ephesus are experiencing the discipline of the Lord in the local church, it is because Paul and others know God can bring salvation and restoration. And that is the hope. In verses 18 to 20 here, we've seen how he is recapping a bit of what he had said earlier in verses 3 through 7. That people were doing what ought not to be done. And that Timothy needs to lean in with a mindset of warfare. Timothy has a warfare that is not just against these some who have rejected a good conscience and are shipwrecking the faith. And the warfare Timothy's engaging in is ultimately spiritual. Isn't that clear, even with the language in verse 20? Whom I have handed over to Satan. That's, that's a different way of, of simply saying, you know, we remove them from the membership roles. I mean, that, that's, that, that is a spiritual activity. It's more graphic to put it this way in verse 20. And it reminds us that the warfare here is a spiritual one with which Timothy is engaged. And he must fight the good fight of faith. What does he need? What does he need to be a faithful soldier for the Lord Jesus in the fight for sound doctrine and truth? He needs to hold faith, to maintain his trust in the Lord, to look to Christ. And he needs to hold to a good conscience. He needs to conform his life and submit his heart to what the scripture teaches is right and what is wrong. And any willful disobedience against the Lord, he needs to turn from that so that he can have a conscience rightly shaped by the word of God and sensitive to the things God hates and the things that God loves. By holding to a good conscience, by continuing to trust in the Lord, Timothy will not shipwreck. There may be other shipwrecks, but it won't be him. And along the way, he can take measures to come alongside others who may be drifting. Who might be looking at their lives and taking one step after another in a dark and disastrous path. And Timothy can warn them. Because God delivers the disobedient. And God has mercy upon the blasphemers. And God welcomes the repentant sinners to himself. That in believing in him, they might have eternal life. And so we end this morning with the doxology of verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.